This is one of the most frightening passages in Scripture. We read in Acts 5, But there was a certain man named Ananias who, with his wife, Sapphira, sold some property. He brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit, and you kept some of the money for yourself. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, but to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he fell to the floor and died. Everyone who heard about it was terrified. Sadly, his wife Sapphira went along with her husband's deception. Instantly, she fell to the floor and died. When the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Well, good morning, everyone. Please uh, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 4. We're finishing Acts chapter 4, and we're going into Acts chapter 5. We'll be going up to verse 11. And so let me just quickly give you a recap. Since uh, early September... We've been thrilled to learn about the growth and the development of the church, the early church, and we know that after the resurrection, Jesus Christ spent 40 days with his disciples, and what is he doing with them? He's, he's showing them from the Old Testament, from the, from the law and from the prophets, how in fact he was a fulfillment of the great prophecies and God's great plan to redeem all of humanity. Everybody say hallelujah. Yes, Jesus Christ is a fulfillment of God's plan to save us. And so he taught the disciples this. He was with them for 40 days. And you'll remember that, that the Holy Spirit fell 50 days after the, after the uh, resurrection of Christ. So the apostles with the other believers were in the upper room for about 10 days. Well, not, I'm not saying they stayed in there the whole time. But, uh, but they were meeting together every day for about 10 days. And then finally, the, the great thing happened. The Holy Spirit fell. And it was an amazing moment. The sound of a mighty rushing wind went through that room, and the Ruach Adonai had come just as Jesus has promised. And the Spirit of God that dwelt in the temple that was built by the hands of men now moved into that upper room and rested in the hearts of every one of those people meeting in that room. And what happened is they began to speak in tongues, the tongues of the nations. And what is God signaling to, to Satan and to all of the nations? He's saying that Jesus Christ has come to take his inheritance. Remember the, the uh, psalm that says, ask of me and I will give you the nations as the inheritance. Well, Jesus Christ, is receiving his inheritance. And now his kingdom will not just be Israel, but will be all the nations. And of course, the Holy Spirit has come to dwell within each person. This is an absolutely thrilling, unprecedented thing. The church was born. And in that moment, Peter stood up to preach, and you remember he preached what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ. And what's he saying? 
He's saying Jesus Christ has conquered death and you don't have to be afraid of death anymore. In fact, through Christ, we have eternal life, hallelujah. This was a great message. So thrilled, so delighted were the people that 3,000 people became Christians on that day and they were baptized and God was moving. And what happened next? Well, there was persecution and they warned Peter and the apostles, don't you dare preach the gospel anymore. Now the scaredy cat Peter, who, who before <laughs> had denied Christ, now he's saying, bring it on. Nothing's gonna stop me from preaching about Jesus. And of course, he preached the gospel. In fact, one day as they were going into the temple, there was a man who was crippled from birth. And he, the, the man crippled from birth said to Peter and John, can you give us some, some money? Can you, can you help me out? And Peter and John said, we don't have money, but we got something better. His name is Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And of course, he rose to his feet and he walked, and all the people rejoiced. And Peter, recognizing it, here's an opportunity. Again, he preached the gospel of Jesus Christ, the resurrected Jesus, the one who has conquered death, the one who has come to bring hope and eternal life to all who believe. And it says that that day 5,000 put their faith in Christ, and now the numbers are some 20,000 people it is no longer just a little group of believers. It's not just 120 people meeting in the upper room. Now we've got 20,000 people and probably many more who have put their faith in Christ and the leaders don't like it because these people are threatening the social order, the economic order. They didn't want these people preaching the gospel and so they persecuted them further. Well, the whole thing is just electrifying. These first four chapters, so thrilling. The church is born. People are loving each other. They're caring for one another. They're praying. They're meeting in homes. They're meeting at the temple, rejoicing and singing. And, and everybody is, is just loving what they see. It, to say that it, is, uh, it was absolutely electrifying, it doesn't do it justice. Well, there's all kinds of superlatives we could use to describe what it was like at that time. But then we hit chapter five, and it takes a very, very shocking turn. Luke gives us the account in chapter five of an outbreak of God's judgment against a certain husband and wife. Well, the church all began well, it was all very thrilling. But before we go further, I want to remind everyone that God is not like some cuddly old teddy bear. We have reduced God. We've reduced him to something that, is, that we can handle. And I'm gonna tell you that has been the biggest mistake that the church has ever committed in the history of Christianity. As C.S. Lewis would say, God is not some senile old grandpa in the sky just wanting the young people to have fun. That's not God. No, we discover as we read the scripture that God is a holy God. He is a consuming fire. We understand that today. All right. Before we go further and talk about that, because that is what we are going to look at this morning, I want to, you to see that God reveals himself in two ways. He re reveals himself as a God who transforms. And I'd like us to look at that first. 
The greatest supernatural work of the Spirit is not signs and wonders. That might, that, that might surprise you. You would think, well, people being raised from the dead, people having their, you know, lame people being healed, arms fixed and whatever. You think that would be the greatest uh, manifestation of the Spirit of God. But I would argue this morning that the greatest miracle in the world is, in fact, the transformation of a sinner. Would you agree with that? When you think about who we are before we're converted, we sinners are utterly and completely selfish. I only heard one amen. <laughs> Nobody wants to admit that. Well, maybe Ryan and Pastor are, but I'm, I'm not like that. What are we really? We're, we're utterly self-centered. We're cowardly. We are greedy. We are lustful. We are proud. Do you want me to go on? I think you get the drift, don't you? That's who we are until we are born again. And even after we're born again, we still struggle, don't we? We struggle with, with, with this sin. And, but the good news, of course, is that the transformation has begun. We call this work, we call this transformation the sanctifying work of the Spirit of God. That's who we are before we're converted. Well, these people become Christians, and they are transformed. But watch what happens when people believe in Jesus Christ and are filled with the Spirit. This should be verse 32. All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything that they had. This is miraculous. Think about yourself. Think about what you're like. First of all, they were united in heart and mind. Not just some, but all the believers. I, I want you to see that. The all tells us a lot about the early church. There were no what you might call nominal Christians. What is a nominal Christian? Nominal means in name only. There was no such thing as that. So either you were a Christian or you weren't. You were truly converted, truly born again, or you were not. Now, I want you to keep that in mind because I'm gonna come back to that later on. But but we, we recognize that all these believers were truly converted. They were transformed. And they were united in heart and mind. There was nobody there that was self-centered. There was nobody there with their own agenda. If anybody, has, if, if anybody is married and has a family, you, you know how miraculous that is, to be united of one heart and one mind. They say all it takes is two people and you've got politics happening. If anybody works in a place where there's multiple employees and you know what it means to be in a place where there's politics at work, where people have their own agendas. But now these people come together and they're one heart, one mind. And not only that, folks, look at this, what they owned uh, was not their own. Suddenly these people who are owners, watch this, this is so amazing. Suddenly they're not owners anymore, they're just stewards. How many know that when you become a Christian, you say, God, take me, take everything I have, it all belongs to you. And, 
And when you become a Christian, when you die to yourself and give, it, give yourself and everything you have to God, then God says, okay, I'm gonna give, give it back to you, but you are now a steward of this, and I want you to use it for my glory and honor. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Well, this happens. This is a miracle. This is an absolute miracle. And they shared everything. Everything they had, well, yeah, you can have some, and you have a need, then you can have some. And look what it says here in 34 and 35. It says, there were no needy people among them. None. Hey, this is, this is what we find in Cross Church. Cross Church Burundi, Cross Church Winnipeg. The people who are part of our body, there are no needy people among us because we do everything we can to share with one another so that there are no needy people among us. And why is that? Well, because those who own land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. I, I need to just point out something here really quickly. Our, 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 our elders, our, our amazing elders, essentially every Sunday we ask you to come and present an offering to the Lord. Um, we could use the same language. You're coming and you're not literally laying it at our feet, but in a sense you are. You're saying we're trusting you to use these resources for the glory of God and to be good stewards. And I want you to know that our elders are, first of all, uh, they're all excellent givers. In fact, they outgive just about everybody in our church. Or at the, and I'm saying this so that you understand that you can trust the leadership, the elders of this church. But even the ability to trust is something that's miraculous. And so we, we recognize that that this ability to trust the, the leadership is, again, something that is done in the power of God. But I need to point something out to you. I need to show you what the secret of this transformation is. You need to understand today that you and I don't have this ability on our own or in our own strength to change ourselves like this. We don't have that ability. We need the power of the Holy Spirit at working us to transform us, to make us into the people that God wants us to be. We understand that today. Well, how does this happen? Well, folks, there's only one way that it happens. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's great grace was upon them all. And your Bible might say, in God's great blessing was upon them all. The actual word is charis, which means Grace, and we talked to you about what grace is. Grace is the enabling, the empowering of Almighty God. You can't live the Christian life. Hey, is anybody gonna doubt about this yet? You don't have the ability to live the Christian life in your own ability. You don't have that ability. And not only do you not have the ability, you don't even have the desire. You don't wanna do this. You don't wanna live like this. I wanna keep what I have. I don't wanna share with everybody. I'll give you a little bit, but I, I don't wanna share. I don't, like, you've got problems or you gotta sort yourself out. You're in pro, you got problems because of the way you live, because of the choices you made, and on and on and on and on. The apostles and the, and the early disciples just like, yeah, here, whatever I've got's yours, you can have it. There's no needy people among us. Well, folks, this happens. People are transformed through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
When you come to church every Sunday and hear the preaching of the word of God, what you may not know is that God shows up powerfully and extends and gives to you his grace. This is why you need to hear the preaching of the word of God. That's why you need to come to church every Sunday because here you will find the means or the source of God's grace, of his power, of his blessing. Who wants God's blessing? Well, now you know where to get it. Every Sunday, 9.30, 11.15, and you can come and hear it and come and receive it. And God will empower you. He will strengthen you. He will enable you. Now, I hear, sometimes I hear preachers, they'll come and take me aside and say, hey, Alan, I got to just tell you this. Oh, boy, the Spirit of God moved greatly at our church. Oh, the Spirit of God moved so greatly at our church on Sunday, I didn't even have a chance to preach. Really? That's not the example we find in the New Testament. When the Spirit of God moved at the temple and the lame man was healed, Peter didn't say, oh, good, the Spirit of God's moving. There's no time to preach. He said, here's my opportunity to preach and to show people where this power comes from. It comes through Jesus Christ. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, the miracle of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's this resurrection power that you and I need in order to live the life that God has called us to live. Amen? We need the preaching of the word of God. We need to be reminded that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that same resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to you and I. You and I need to hear this. You and I need to come to church every Sunday. We need to be reminded of this. This is the power that transforms us. How powerful is it? Well, listen to it. What Luke says in verses 36 and 37, he says, for instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So powerful was this gospel message. It says that he sold the field he owned and he brought the money to the apostles. He may have been the first one to do this. He may have been, he may have been the one that actually set the example. Everybody saw about Barnabas dead and said, wow, let's do what he did. This is exciting. This is thrilling. This is miraculous. And I need to add you another by the way here. If anyone thinks that this is a proof text for communism or for socialism, which is really hot right now, it's like what everybody wants, socialism. They think this is what we need. This is, this is fantastic. And even the Bible supports this. No, it does not. Look, the only way that communism or socialism can work is if everybody is truly converted. You say, Pastor John, why, why are you using the word truly in there? Because there's some people who go to church every Sunday who think they're converted. They think they're Christians because they go to church every Sunday because maybe they were baptized. They said a sinner's prayer. They went through catechism. They went to Sunday school. I don't know. But only way that socialism or communism could ever work is if everybody is truly converted, truly born again. Why is that? It's because of our sin nature. We are self-centered by nature. We are greedy by nature. We are lustful by nature. 
We put ourselves first by nature. This, my friends, is why socialism and communism can never work. It will never work. It has never worked anywhere in the world. It has never, ever, ever, and will never, ever, ever work. Need I say more? So you get, you're getting two sermons for the price of wine. So don't even go down that road with me. It doesn't work. And I'll tell you something else. Even democracy, uh, or, or I should say the republicanism, because I don't know if you know this, America is a republic. It doesn't really work either unless everybody is converted. And now we're seeing the implosion of that nation because it depends on people being honest and, and being uh, self-effacing and putting self last and putting others first and being trustworthy and being trustful. And we're seeing that nation now. I mean, I don't think there's, there's any return now. I think now we're gonna see the rapid decline of America. This is what happens when people are not transformed by the power of God. You got that? Well, my friends, God does not just reveal himself as a transforming God. He reveals, reveals himself as a holy God as well. And now, and now it gets difficult this morning. We read in chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. And this should show you how communism and socialism doesn't work. But there was a certain man named Ananias who with his wife Sapphira sold some property. Chapter five, verse two, he brought part of the money to the apostles, claiming it was the full amount. With his wife's consent, he kept the rest. Then Peter said, Ananias, why have you let Satan fill your heart? You lied to the Holy Spirit and you kept some of the money for yourself. The property was yours to sell or not sell, as you wished. And after selling it, the money was also yours to give away. How could you do a thing like this? You weren't lying to us, you were lying to God. As soon as Ananias heard these words, he didn't even have a chance to say anything. He fell to the floor, dropped dead. And everyone who heard about it was terrified. Then some young men got up, wrapped him in a sheet, and took him out and buried him. Now, can you imagine going to church that Sunday? It's a good thing they had two guys with a gift of burial. <laughs> the gift of Paul Bear, the gift of, of doing that. Well, it says in verse seven, about three hours later, his wife came in. Where was she? She was out shopping, you know that, with that money that they didn't give to God, that money they held back. Well, it doesn't say that, but where was she? What was she doing? Not knowing what had happened, Peter asked her, was this the, the price that you and your husband received for this land? Yes, she replied. That was the price. And Peter said, how could the two of you even think of conspiring to test the spirit of the Lord like this? And the young men who buried your husband are just outside the door, and they will carry you out too. This is terrifying. Is this terrifying to anybody? It should be. 
And instantly she fell to the floor and died. And when the young men came in and saw that she was dead, they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And here's what happened. It says, great fear gripped the entire church and everyone else who heard what had happened. Now, I've got to point something out to you. When they sold their land, the apostles didn't say, if you sell all your land, you must give all the money to us. They never said that. Nobody said that. Nobody qualified how this should be done. Nobody was saying, you got to give it all. They could do whatever they want. And that's always the way it's been. At our church, we don't say you can't come to church here if you don't tithe, if you don't give. It's between you and God. So what happened? Well, they wanted to impress the apostles and the church in the same way that Barnabas impressed everybody. I mean, he wasn't trying to impress anybody. He was just trying to, trying to be a good Christian. And everybody was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. This is thrilling. What an inspiration to us. And Ananias and Sapphira, I think they were converted. I, I really do think they were converted. But they gave in to temptation. Let the Spirit of God speak to you right now. This is a warning to all of us. It's a warning to all of us concerning temptation and sin. And they thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have the kind of recognition that Barnabas is getting? They wanted the attention of the apostles. Then they walked in. He, Ananias walks in ceremoniously with his money. Make sure everybody's watching. Like the one time my grandma came to church, one time, and she, when it was offering time, she reached into her purse and pulled out a $5 bill like this so I could see it and everybody else. I put it in the offering plate. That was Ananias and Sapphira. Everybody to see what they're doing. They wanted the, the recognition. They wanted the applause of men. I'm going to tell you, it says, the Bible tells us very clearly that the approval of men is a trap. Paul says in Galatians 1.10, if I were now trying to, to win the favor of men, of humans, I wouldn't be a servant of God. Try to win the, the approval and the praise and the applause of humans is a trap. It will destroy you as it destroyed Ananias and Sapphira. They were lusting for fame. They were lusting for power and position in the church. And folks, I got to tell you this. I hate to say it, but we still see this. We see it on TV. We see it, we see it uh, and I'm talking about the, the Christian world especially. It's shocking. It's shocking the number of pastors that want to make a name for themselves. When I was, when I was uh, just a young pastor, when the, when the internet was established, I'm, I'm that old, I remember when that happened. It says, are you, going to make a, are you going to make a website, Alan Duncalf Ministries? No. Because I believe what, what John the Baptist said. He must increase and I must decrease. It's not about Alan Duncalf. When you come to Cross Church, you're not coming to Cross to Alan Duncalf Church. You're coming to Cross Church. This, this is the church of Jesus Christ. He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. You get this? Very critical that you understand that. 
I'm I'm just I'm 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 no better than you and no worse than you. You and I, all of us, we stand on the ground at the foot of the cross, and that ground is all level. It's all even. We're all even before God. We're all equally in need of his grace. But Ananias and Sapphira, they thought, man, look at the, the apostles. They're getting all this attention. Everybody loves the apostles. They're wonderful. And look, Barnabas now, he's worked his way up the ladder. What kind of thinking, what kind of sick and evil thinking is this? This should not be in the church. You don't try to make a name for yourself. I actually had a pastor say that to me when I went to Carberry. I could have gone to Calgary or Carberry. Carberry, 3,000 people. Calgary, maybe a million, maybe two million. I don't know what it is now. You'll, you'll, the pastor said, you'll never make a name for yourself if you go to Carberry. I didn't know I was supposed to make a name for myself. They didn't teach me that in Bible school. I must have missed that course, how to make a name for yourself in the ministry. It's evil. No, the, the transforming power of God makes us humble, godly people who want God to be glorified, who want Christ to be glorified, who points people to Jesus Christ. And everybody said, yeah, that's what we're talking about. But not Ananias and Sapphira. Let me ask you a question. Has God ever done something like this before? Yes, he has. You go to the Old Testament, you'll find that under Paul, uh, Saul, King Saul's kingship, the enemy, the Philistines, captured the Ark of the Covenant. What is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, the Ark of the Covenant was like a box, and on the box there was a lid that had two cherubim, two angels, and in the box were the Ten Commandments. It was the rod of Aaron that budded, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, you need to go look that up. I haven't got time to do another sermon. I did two already. And the other thing is, of course, they had the pot of manna. All of these things represent the power of Almighty God at work amongst his people. And it was from the Ark of the Covenant that God would speak to Moses from between the two cherubim. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was carried into battle before the soldiers of Israel. And there was very strict laws about this, very strict rules. They were told exactly how many feet away from the ark that everybody had to stay. Why? Because it was holy. Because it represented God's holy presence. And so the soldiers stood back a certain way, but the problem is, of course, there was sin in the camp, and Israel lost the ark. It was terrifying. Now, here's the thing. This is actually quite humorous. The enemy, when they had the ark, there was an outbreak of boils, disease, of mice, all kinds of problems, and finally the the enemy says, hey, we, we can't keep this ark here anymore. It's causing too much damage. And so they, what they do is they put it out in a field in Israel, and some of, the, some of the nosy and curious Israelites, they went to look upon it. And the Bible says that God struck them down. Now, why is that? Because it was holy. And God gave clear instructions and clear warnings about how you deal with that which is holy. How many know today that you and I, if we were in the presence of Almighty God, we would be slain instantly because of the fact that God is holy and we are not? 
You'll say, well, how come I'm still here? I'll tell you why, because you put your faith in Jesus Christ and Christ is the propitiatory covering. The judgment and the wrath of God does not break out against us because we are covered by Christ. But here they are, not paying any attention to the law of God and being ignorant of the law of God. Well, where that ark was was also blessing. And David found out about the fact that this farmer, he's got the Ark of the Covenant at in his, in his, at his farm. And this man's getting all kinds of blessing from God because the presence of God is there. And David says, this, this is not right. We need to get this covenant to, to Jerusalem. This is where it belongs. And so David, being very enthusiastic about this and thinking he's doing a good thing, he says, let's get, an, let's get a cart and somebody get an ox and we'll, we'll bring this ark back to Jerusalem. And the Bible says that as, there, as the ark was being carried by this cart, and pull, the cart was pulled by the oxen, the oxen stumbled, and the ark was a little bit shaky, and Uzzah reached out to stabilize that ark, and in that moment that he touched the ark, he dropped dead right on the spot. Whoa. He was doing a good thing. Why would God do that? Because that ark was holy. Because that which is unholy cannot dwell in the presence of what is holy, cannot touch that which is holy. You need to understand that. In his ignorance, Uzzah took liberties with God. Can I tell you something? This is a great warning from God. You cannot take liberties with God. Not even in your ignorance can you take liberties with God. You must do what the word of God instructs us to do. You must know the word of God and you must live by the word of God. I'll talk about more of that in just a moment. Uzzah was struck down because of his ignorance. Ananias and Sapphira were struck down because of their laziness. They got a little too comfortable, a little bit too familiar with God. Let me explain what I mean by that. Remember that when Jesus came, he started preaching a message that Israel had never heard before. Jesus was proclaiming that God is our Father. And as our Father, he wants to have relationship with us. With us. He's our, our, he, we are his children. He's our Father. This is, this is, this is mind-blowing to the people. Jesus is saying that God wants an intimate relationship with his children. And then the spirit of God is poured out. And now these Christians are experiencing God with a fellowship and an intimacy that they had never experienced, they'd never known it before. They'd never experienced anything like this. There was a new comfort with God. And this comfort, unfortunately, turned to contempt or disrespect. Now, let this be a warning to all of us here today because it's very easy for us in our being comfortable with God and having these, these wrong and carnal uh, notions, ideas about God, for us to become disrespectful and forget that it is God the Holy One that is our God. I remember one, one teacher with YWAM, he wrote a book about the Father Heart of God. 
And I remember the teaching that they were giving to these at this DTS, suggesting, oh, God is like a loving little daddy, just crawl up on his knee and cuddle up in his, and in, in, in just that. Do you realize that the daddy that you want to cuddle up with is the Holy One of God? You don't get to create, recreate God in your own image or according to your own imagination. Realize that. God himself defines for us who he is. You don't define that. God defines that. And this is why you need to know the word of God. It's the transforming power of God. I have seen this, and you've seen it too. Some children, because they feel so comfortable with their parents, and they love their parents, and their parents don't see them so much as parents as they see themselves as friends to their children. They create in their home a disrespect. The children don't respect their parents. And so what we see is children talking back to their parents. You see children who, who tell their children, tell their parents what to do. The, the children now become the parents. And the parents are like, what do you want to, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? What, what can I give you? What can I, and the parents, the children, go get this, go get that, turn the TV on for me, and while you're at it, get me something to eat, and I'll be sitting over here, and, and when you're done doing that, while I'm watching TV, go out and buy me a new video game. And while you're there, there's a few other things, like get me some of my snacks, and I'll be just sitting here, and when you get back, I'll figure out some more things for you to do. That's the world we live in now. I've seen children scream at their parents, lie at them. I've, I've seen children swear at their parents. I've, I've even seen children slap their parents, slap across the face, slap their hands. I'm mad at you. The parents, oh. There's a reason why God establishes for us in his word the importance of authority. Authority is good for our sake. You get that? It's good for us because it protects us. I learned to fear God because I learned, first of all, how to fear my father. My dad taught me to fear him. And it was natural for me to fear God. This fear of God, and this, well, actually, this fear of my father, first of all, protected me. I told you the story about how I was running across the street trying this, I was playing chicken with cars at four years old. The cars would drive along and I, and I would time it just right and I would see if I could run and get across that street before I was hit by a car. And I was actually doing pretty good until, uh, until the, the car screeched along and hit me in the hip and thankfully it didn't hit very hard. That didn't scare me. What scared me is when I saw my dad coming toward me. It wasn't the car coming toward me that terrified me. It was my father. And I, I'll tell you, I got in big trouble for that. But I can tell you this, I never did it again. In fact, there's a lot of things that I didn't do because of having a fear of my father. I'm going to tell you something today. The fear of God is not a bad thing. It's the best thing. It protects you physically, and it protects you spiritually. This is why God has instituted this. You need to understand that. 
And those of you parents who are trying to be your children's best friend, stop it. You are not their friend. You are something better than a friend. You are a parent. This is a sacred and a holy and a wonderful thing. And the Bible tells us that it's the one commandment, the, one, of the, the one, ten, one of the 10 commandments that comes with a promise that if you honor your mother and father, then you will live long in the land. You will be blessed. You will know the blessing of God. The fear of God, my friends, is a good thing. Well, Ananias and Sapphira, they got a little bit too comfortable with God. And again, you've heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. A little bit too familiar with God. And the next thing you know, they think to themselves, hey, let's uh, sell our property and we'll give most of it. We'll give most of it to the, to the work of God. We won't give all of it. Hey, it's just a little lie. Hello, it's just a little lie. Just a little lie. What can, I, what can I hurt? A little lie, right? Compared to all the money that we'll be giving, I mean, all the good that we're doing will cancel out the bad, right? You see the way our evil minds work. Hey, we're all evil geniuses. If we put our mind to it, all, every one of us knows how to excuse ourselves. Every one of us knows how to rationalize and how to do the evil we want to do. And we know how to justify it in our minds. Oh, yes, uh, you know, just a little white lie, just a little, just a little lie. It's not going to hurt any. Nobody will be hurt by this. Everybody will be, it won't, hurt, it won't hurt anybody. But the problem is, is that you're not lying to people. You're lying to God. You may be able to justify yourself to yourself and maybe even to others. But you can't justify yourself to God. And so here we are. The birth of the church and already we have this outbreak of evil. What would happen if God had not stepped in and done something? This would have become a problem. This would have multiplied. Now, if there's any doubt in anyone's mind today, let me remind you of who God is. He is the holy God of Israel. He is a consuming fire. His holiness, it so terrified Israel. They didn't want to go near God. They didn't, this, God, you stay over there, we'll stay over here. And when God says to Moses, summon the people, I want to meet with them, the people said, uh, no. Moses, you go. You go meet with God. And we'll just wait over here. You, you deal with him. They were terrified. Why are they terrified? Because of the sin in their lives. They knew there were sinners in the presence of a holy God. Listen to what it says in Exodus 20, 18 to 20. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you 
so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. You see the goodness of God, and you see how good and important the fear of God is. It protects us. It keeps us from sin. Now stop for a moment and think about this. Every one of us in this room has experienced the horrible, horrendous, terrifying consequences of sin in our own lives. Every one of us here today, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know the consequences of sin that you have faced. You know how horrific it is. And God knows the human nature. He knows what, what we're capable of. And so God, in his mercy and in his kindness, he teaches us the fear of God. And I want you to see, Moses says, do not be afraid of God. And then he says that God is, is teaching us the fear of God. Is he contradicting himself? Absolutely not. He's saying, don't be afraid of God, but you need to fear God. What's he saying? He said, God loves you, but you need to respect him and do exactly what he says. Not more and not less. Hang on to that thought for a moment. Because I know some people will think, well, hang on a minute here. Uh, this is Old Testament, Pastor Allen. Uh, we're now in the New Testament era, the new dispensation of grace. Well, let me remind you something. The author of Hebrews who writes in the New Testament says this, Hebrews 10, 26 to 31. Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There's only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law of Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. For we know the one who said, I will take revenge, I will pay them back. He also said, the Lord will judge his own people. It is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. God has not changed. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. He is holy, and he demands that we be holy. These are his words. Be holy as I am holy. Be separated, be set apart. Apart from this evil world, because I am holy. God's not changed, he's still holy. And folks, listen to me. God is reminding every one of us today that we need to have a healthy and holy fear of God. Now, let me say this in closing. God made examples of Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira. When you look at them, you think to yourself, 
Pastor, if the truth be known, I've done worse. I've done worse than Uzzah, and I've done worse than Ananias and Sapphira. What's going on here? If God will strike down these people, I deserve to be struck down. But what God's doing here is he's making an example. He is reminding Israel through Uzzah and reminding the early church through Ananias and Sapphira that he is holy and he demands holiness from his people. He made them an example. Don't think for one moment that because your sin is invisible that nobody knows about it. Don't think for a minute that God doesn't know about it. I'm going to tell you, if you think reading this passage of Scripture is uncomfortable, try preaching it. It terrifies me. Even as I stand before you, knowing what a sinner I am, I stand before you with fear and trembling, with great fear and great trembling. It just so happened that God made an example of Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira. Now, I believe that, this may shock you, I believe that we will see Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira, we will see them in heaven. Because I believe they were truly converted. I believe in the forgiveness and the mercy of God. But I also believe in the consequences of sin. And I also believe in the sovereignty of God and that God will do whatever God wants to do because he is God. If he wants to use them as an example, then so be it. And again, if we look at these people, by that standard, every one of us should be struck down right here, right now. Don't for a minute think of yourself as being better than anybody else in this room. Folks, if you look around this room today, this is a room full of sinners in need of God's grace and mercy. Every one of us is here rejoicing in Jesus Christ who has washed our sins away. We rejoice today that we're able to come into the presence of Almighty God through Jesus Christ, our Redeemer, our Lord, the one who has cleansed us of our sin. We walk in holiness today because our God is holy and he demands it of us. This was a warning to the early church and it's a warning to us. And folks, if you are a Christian today, understand this. You cannot believe whatever you want to believe. You believe only what the word of God tells you to believe. You don't get to pick and choose whatever you want to believe. You don't get to reject whatever you want to reject. It's a package deal. It's all or nothing. And I will be the first one to admit there's things in the scripture that's hard to swallow. But I know who God is, and I know his nature. He's good, he's righteous, and his ways are perfect. And whatever he says is good. And so I embrace it, no matter how difficult it may be. 
Oh, my friends, you don't get to reshape Christianity to your liking. You don't get to rip pages of the Bible out because they offend your sensibilities. You embrace the whole truth because it's the truth that sets us free. This is who we are in Christ, a people who have been redeemed and made holy through Jesus Christ. Oh, God, help us and deliver us from the liberality that has embraced the church and that the church has embraced. As long as you come to Cross Church, you know that the message from this, from this pulpit will be the message, the pure message of the word of God. Nothing will be deleted or left out. God helping me. Every single church that refuses to preach the full word of God is dying. It's dying, dying, and dead. Every week, the United Church is closing another church. And it's not just the United Church. It's churches closing all over the place. Why? Because they stop preaching the word of God. They stop preaching the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They stop preaching about the God who transforms us, the God who reveals himself as the transforming God, and they stop preaching the God who is holy. And so, as Peter says, in these very shocking words, he says, for the time has come for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. It must begin with us. Examine your heart and see where you are see if you are in the faith or not. My commitment to you is to preach the orthodox faith that's been handed down to us through the ages. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible a fate waits those who have never obeyed God's good news? The good news is the gospel. And also, if the righteous are barely saved, did you hear that? If the righteous, that's you and me, if we're barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? My friends, this is not a joke. This is serious stuff. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray? Father, we want to say thank you for the warning that you've given to every one of us in this room and all who are gathered online through live streaming. You're warning us today to examine our hearts and to get right with you, lest we experience the consequences of unholy living. And we will, because your word tells us God will not be mocked. Father, this morning we know you are calling each and every one of us to walk with you with a holy fear and a deep respect for our God. Father, thank you today for the reminder from your word. Even now, your spirit is speaking to us and you are showing us things in our own lives that need to go, that need to be cut off, needs to be removed. People that we are hanging out with that are calling us, causing us to stumble and to fall. Oh God, we repent of our sin this morning. 
And we thank you that through Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. Through Jesus Christ, we have the hope of eternal life. This is the gospel, the good news of Christ. And Lord, it's not by our strength, but it's through the spirit of the living God that we have this eternal life. So we commit ourselves to you now in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me. Tell the person beside you, go in the fear of God. Thank you.